and welcome to Secrets and Sins. For today's episode, we will be looking at a few of the film adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, discussing how the horror translates from the page to the screen, and how reanimating the same creature with different mad scientists takes its toll on the nature of the story. Since the release of Mary Shelley's novel in 1818, the tale of Frankenstein has been retold countless times, especially through film. IMDb lists 47 titles for Frankenstein, ranging from 1910 to 2012. And while it would be interesting to look into each of these films, that would take a little more time than I have to spare. So today we will be going over a few of the most popular and culturally impactful adaptations. As a fair warning, this episode touches on the contents of, and in some cases, the endings of these films, as well as a few clips from a couple of them, so a spoiler warning is in order. The first film we're going to look at also happens to be the first film adaptation produced for Frankenstein, which is Thomas Edison's 1910 film promptly titled Frankenstein. This film was only 13 minutes long, but delivered an astounding visual introduction to the concept that had only been seen previously on ink and paper. In fact, the film that was originally created was altered before it was released to the public, and with many claims from the film executives that the film was too gory and horrifying, which meant less money in their pockets. This led to the loss of several violent and bloody scenes, along with the addition of a disclaimer that was released alongside the film, which said, To those familiar with Mrs. Shelley's story, it will be evident that we have carefully omitted anything which might have any possibility to shock any portion of the audience. In making the film, the Edison Company has carefully tried to eliminate all actual repulsive situations and to concentrate its endeavors upon the mystic and psychological problems that are to be found in this weird tale. Wherever, therefore, the film differs from the original story, it is purely with the idea of eliminating what would be repulsive to a moving picture audience. This film is a loose adaptation compared to the book, which is understandable considering they took a 258-page book and condensed it to 13 minutes, and the directors took many creative liberties in terms of putting their own spin on it. In this film, the, crea the creation of the creature is heavily dramatized, with the creation scene lasting 2 minutes and 50 seconds, which takes up about 20% of the movie, while in the book, Shelley spends very little time on the creation of the creature, with his awakening only lasting about a paragraph. The biggest difference between the book and the film is the ending. The film shows the creature running through Frankenstein's home with Victor chasing him before stopping in front of a mirror in his parlor, shrieking and vanishing. Victor runs in shortly after, seeing the creature's reflection in the mirror, pointing and yelling, only for the reflection to fade away, leaving only Victor. This ending plays with the possibility that the creature never existed in the first place and that it was only an extension of Victor's mind and all of the murders that were committed was a result of Victor's own madness, and the creator was simply, simply a conduit for him to deal with what he had done. This theory had actually been, has actually been applied to Shelley's book by a few academics, and while it's an interesting concept, it delegitimatizes many points in the film, mainly the creation scene, which puts a lot of emphasis on the physical manifestation of the creature. Overall, this film introduced Frankenstein to the visual world and laid the groundwork for the many Frankenstein films to come. And while its connection to the book may not be the most accurate adaptation, there is definitely something to be said for it being the first. The next film we're going to discuss is James Whale's 1931 adaptation, also titled Frankenstein. And before we talk about this film, let's take a moment to listen to a sound clip from the iconic creation scene. As a fair warning to headphone users, there's a lot of lightning and clanging noises, and it's a little loud. Yeah. Hey. 
quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. from that clip this film definitely brings in the lightning and the big electrical spectacle that comes into bringing the creature to life and as you heard after the creation of the creature Frankenstein is ecstatic that the creature has come to life nowhere near the horrified state the books Frankenstein finds himself in after the creation now that we've heard one of the most iconic Frankenstein scenes played through let's discuss some of the aspects of the film for starters, it defined the iconic Frankenstein look that many associate with him today, complete with the squared-off head and bulky neck bolts, and the actor portraying Frankenstein, Boris Karloff, delivered an astounding performance that evoked both pity and fear from the audience, and set the mold for the Frankensteins to come. The biggest thing about this adaptation that goes against Shelley's original design is that instead of the creature being an intelligent and articulate being, James Whale's Frankenstein doesn't utter a word. Only grunts and nondescript sounds accompany this creature. There's no philosophical discussions about the meaning of life or challenging his creator as to why he was ever born. However, this element seems to fit very well for the film, taking a different path to illustrate the creature's confusion and childlike innocence in a world where he's cast aside. Another important element of this, film's cre of this film is the creature's brain. During the creation, Victor's assistant drops the normal brain that was intended for the creature, causing him to scramble and grab the only brain left, which supposedly belonged to a criminal. 
Despite this, the film doesn't portray the creature as inherently evil, with the only violence being with the only violence being committed is out of self-defense or ignorance. This element of the film comments on the nature versus nurture, arguing that the vile acts of the creature originate from the violence projected onto him from the world around him. Regarding the nature of the film, just as the 1910 adaptation did, this film also presented a disclaimer before the film in an attempt to diffuse any backlash they might face from religious groups about presenting a story about a man playing God. The disclaimer was presented by a character in the movie and said the following, How do you do? Mr. Carl Lamell feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a friendly word of warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we warned you. This disclaimer is very similar to the one that was presented before the 1910 film, and this highlights the ever-present controversy of the story of a man playing God. This Frankenstein adaptation is by far one of the most iconic and successful Frankenstein films, not only launching Universal Studios' iconic monster series, but paving the way for the Frankenstein adaptations yet to come. Next up, we have the 1974 parody adaptation, Young Frankenstein. This particular adaptation is quite popular with Frankenstein fans and considered by many to be one of the better adaptations. Despite being a parody, this film relates back to Shelley's original source quite directly. The adaptation tells the story of Victor's grandson, Frederick, who inherits Victor's castle and all of its contents, among which he finds Victor's notes, including those on the creation of the creature. Following the path of his grandfather, he recreates the creature, and instead of becoming immediately repulsed by it and casting him aside, leaving him striving for acceptance and going on a revenge-filled murder spree, he nurtures the creature and attempts to teach him to be civil. Despite this, the creature still escapes and wreaks havoc until Frankenstein's fiancé comes and falls in love with the monster, which is an interesting and very different take on the consequence of playing God. In comparison to the novel, this adaptation has a light and humorous atmosphere, and unlike the previous adaptations we've discussed, does not come with a disclaimer at the beginning warning viewers about the horror that lies ahead. To give you sort of a better idea of how the tone of this adaptation differs from those became the before it and the book itself, we're going to listen to a clip from just after the monster was created. I'm going in there. Bring me that candle. No! no yes. Love is the only thing that can save this poor creature. And I am going to convince him that he is loved, even at the cost of my own life. No matter what you hear in there, no matter how cruelly I beg you, no matter how terribly I may scream, do not open this door or you will undo everything I've worked for. Do you understand? Do not open this door. Yes, Doctor. Nice working with you.
out. Let me out of here. Get me the hell out of here. What's the matter with you people? I was joking. Don't you know a joke when you hear one? <laughs> Jesus Christ, get me out of here. Open this goddamn door. I'll kick your rotten heads in. Mommy! Nine! Good-looking fellow, do you know that? People laugh at you. People hate you, but why do they hate you? Because they are jealous! Look at that boyish face. Look at that sweet smile. Do you want to talk about physical strength? Do you want to talk about sheer muscle? Do you want to talk about the Olympian ideal? You are a god! And listen to me. You are not evil. You are good! <laughs> angel and I want the world to know once and for all and without any shame that we love him oh. I'm going to teach you I'm going to show you how to walk how to speak how to move how to think together you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. Dr. Frankenstein, are you all right? My name is Frankenstein. The tone of that film is clearly more light and humorous compared to the 1931 clip that we listened to. Um, you can tell the difference between Victor Frankenstein's horror with the creature that was described in the book compared to what you hear from Frederick Frankenstein. He's determined to teach the creature to be good. He tells them, he tells them all the things he's going to teach him. He talks about how he's going to show him how much he's loved. And though that really parallels between the two different forms of media that we see. By turning the tale that was quite literally born from a nightmare into a comedic parody shows the versatility that this story has and just how malleable the creature and its nature can be. So the final film that we're going to discuss is a bit of a sour note to end on as it's not regarded as one of the greatest adaptations ever made. It's the 1994 film titled Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and while it's one of the more accurate representations accurate adaptations of the book, unfortunately the film itself simply was not presented well. And many seem to account the film's failure to the casting, with one example being the creature, who was played by Robert De Niro. 
So this adaptation kind of shows how the actors chosen to portray these complex characters can sort of affect how the story's tone plays out. In terms of this film, the casting had the unintended effect of turning the theme of unrelenting obsession and dread from something unnerving and sublime to more comical, which unless you're directly doing a parody like Young Frankenstein, isn't really the goal you're going for when you're making a Frankenstein adaptation. In terms of content, however, this film exercised using the electricity from thunderstorms to animate the creature, so that brought in yet another staple to the Frankenstein tropes. And another piece that differs from the source material is that after Elizabeth is killed, Victor brings her back to life, only to have the creature attempt to take her for his bride. And this kind of relates back to young Frankenstein, when Frederick Frankenstein's fiancé falls in love with the creature. So that's just an interesting parallel from that. Um, this film is the most recent true-to-source adaptation of Frankenstein, with the ones that follow after it being Universal Studios' 2004 Van Helsing, which includes Frankenstein along with other classic horror, uh, horror monsters such as Dracula and the Werewolf, and 2012's Frankenweenie, which is an animated stop-motion film that portrays Frankenstein as a child. Um, and while... Mary Shelley's Frankenstein didn't gain as much favor with fans as, as the Frankenstein classics did. It does give the story a resurgence as films and special effects move forward. And this sort of pulled the appearance of the creature back to Shelley's original design compared to the iconic 1931 design. And this more reminded audiences that Frankenstein was a concept that was out there and sort of brought it back to relevancy. So while these are only a few of the many Frankenstein film adaptations that are out there, these films were some of the most influential and impactful adaptations. It's very hard to take every aspect of a book and present it in the form of a film. And there's always going to be something that is glossed over or cut out entirely, whether it's to fit within the runtime or to keep in line with the director's vision of the story. Another thing that sort of changes from the page to the screen is the work that has to go into properly translating the words into an accurate and satisfying visual experience. So whether it's with the setting or the appearance of the monster itself, because throughout the film adaptations you can see the changes between the with the appearance of the monster. And there's also the point to be made that some things can be read with no issue from a book, and that can change very quickly when the viewer has to see it right in front of them on the big screen. It's less... The story is still important, but with a film, the main thing is what you're looking at, what you're seeing in front of you. And this issue was seen with the disclaimers that were shown before the earlier adaptations, sort of warning viewers about the visual effects that lied ahead. And while those were mostly to save face against the controversial playing God content against the religious groups, these early studios were still sort of playing with the presence of monsters on the big screen. In the early years of film, the main genre to be seen was short clips with the main intent of causing the audience to laugh. And monsters and horror were a concept that wasn't fully fleshed out as something to be commonly seen on screen. As with any adaptation, each director that took on the tale of Frankenstein pulled different aspects that they felt were the most impactful to the story. From Edison's adaptation, which focused more on the creation of the monster and playing with that theory of delusion, to Mel Brooks taking the horror of Frankenstein and turning it into a comedy. comedy. These perspectives change the story to fit the vision they have to tell the story in their own way. And as the story passes through the years, 
The creature becomes a conduit for presenting what each director perceives to be most monstrous. Such as James, w- James Whale making the decision to not have the creature speak, which gave him the presence more of a child trapped in a man's body instead of an educated and thoughtful monster. And as time goes on, the creature slowly becomes less diabolical, as films such as The Bride of Frankenstein and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein began to, began to surface. And this turned the creature into the Halloween icon that he is today, instead of the truly horrifying monster that he originated as. And another major aspect that changed throughout the films is the nature of Victor Frankenstein. His transition from a timid scholarly man driven to madness by his own creation to a wild mad scientist quickly became the norm to fit the tone set for these movies. And much like the creature became a conduit for the idea of a monstrosity, Victor became the conduit for exactly what type of person would lead to the creation of such a thing. So for each director that handled the film, they had to make their own sense of who would create that type of creature. So it's almost as though it was easier to understand if a monster was born from the mishaps of a crazed mad scientist instead of the consequence of a young scientist who was trying to push the limits of man and nature. Whether or not these film adaptations accurately delivered Shelley's story, each film has one thing in common. They all explore the theme of power, of a man playing God, and the inevitable tragedy that follows. Stories are meant to be retold, and with that comes the inevitability of change, especially in the world of film. And it is this that makes Frankenstein a tale that was able to impact countless generations, and to be able to tell the story again and again. That concludes this episode of Secrets and Sins. Thank you for listening.